Brooklyn, New York. I'm Lisa Butterworth, and this is Caught Red-Handed. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Caught Red-Handed. Noam Siena is my guest today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for all your great comments on the blog post and on the Facebook page. It's really been great hearing all of your comments and your support and your encouragement. After I did the first episode and worked so hard on it, you know, there's a huge learning curve and all of this stuff. I thought, oh, God, I have to do more episodes of this. I have to do this regularly so that people will listen and tune in and they're expecting it. I don't know if I can keep doing episode after episode after episode, but yeah, hearing all of your comments and all of your support, it really makes it so much easier to just keep going. And also the more I talk to people about it and the more I interview people, more ideas I get for more podcasts. So I, I don't feel that pressure so much to create more. So thanks everyone for your support. And, um, thanks to Darcy and Noam for being such great guests and helping make it a lot easier for me. So here's what's going on in my henna life. As I record this, I just finished doing a design down a woman's back. She's going on vacation. I'm sure you've all had gigs like that. And before that, I had a really cool bridal consult. Uh, A lot of my consults, a lot of my gigs actually are booked online. So sometimes I never talk to the person until I actually meet them. So it's always an interesting surprise. And the woman who came in is half Syrian and she's Muslim and her dad is some kind of American mix. She grew up in Turkey. She also spent a lot of her life in Morocco because her Syrian, the Syrian part of her family lived in Morocco. So, um, I love Morocco. I love Turkey. So we had a lot to talk about. And then we talked about Turkish politics because the protests are going on now as, as I'm recording this. And we talked a lot about the things going on in Syria. It was just a really fascinating conversation. And for her bridal consult, I gave her a little design as a sample. So I did a little bit of Indian. I did a little bit of Moroccan. So that's my day today. Uh, this weekend, I actually went up to Vermont and... Um, was going to try and meet up with Rebecca Friedner and I went up there for my boyfriend's gig and he's in a band and I realized at the last minute I know somebody in Vermont so I emailed Rebecca and unfortunately she was at a very long fair on one of the first hot days of summer here in the northeast and she was just wiped out so we didn't get to meet but we did text back and forth and I warned her that she's on my hit list for the podcast so Rebecca you have been warned again so uh the interesting thing about my my trip to Vermont was that the singer in the band loves henna 
And so during sound check, I handed her, I just brought Hannah because I thought I might see Rebecca. And uh, she was so happy. And she even performed with the pace still on because we, I handed her maybe two or three hours before the gig so she couldn't take it off yet. The other nice thing about my weekend in Vermont, apart from seeing um, cows and green trees and farms and whatnot, was that hanging around with these musicians who are also good friends of mine is really beneficial to me as an artist. It's really enlightening and energizing. Every time I spend time with them, it's just like a really great shot of I don't even know what kind of drug. Uh, it's just really great to be around that creative energy. And because they're performing, they're actively perfecting their art, which is really cool to be a witness to. And when they're not on stage, we're talking about the artistic process. And it's really interesting hearing how they view their own art, how it changes from show to show. And also just seeing how they recommit themselves each night to do the same thing again, but actually do it better. It's a good reminder for me as a henna artist. Henna just got really busy for me. I don't know what happened. I had a moment a few weeks ago where I realized with horror that I had no weddings and hardly any parties booked for the rest of the summer. And I happened to see Darcy online, so I was freaking out with her online and chatting about what might be wrong. And she, of course, had some very good suggestions. As you all know, she's really good with the business advice. And our discussion reminded me of some of the things that I meant to do to market myself and never got around to. So I started to take some action. I started the bridal blog that I've been planning for a long time. It's called Ronnie and the City. And you can find it at ronnieinthecity.wordpress.com. That's, I haven't bought the domain yet. Um, I also followed up with some clients who hadn't confirmed yet and just in general refocused myself on henna. And then suddenly I got a bunch of new interests. I got a bride who confirmed, some more who booked consults. I got a bunch of parties and some private appointments and it just came in this deluge. And for me, it was a really good reminder to just put out that energy out into the universe that I love to do henna, I want to do henna, I'm open to doing more, etc. Just put that energy out there, open that pathway, and I feel like opening that pathway came back to me. So it's just a good reminder to me to keep up my energy and feel gratitude for this really awesome job that I have where I get to do something I love and get paid for it. So if my experience can help all of you guys out there, I am glad to share it with you. So today's episode is with Noam Sienna, and it was suggested to me that I could probably just ask a few questions and he would just talk. And, um, and yeah, that's, um, that's kind of how it turned out. Noam and I have been trying to meet up for a little while. He planned to be in town for a wedding. And so we just tried to find a time when we could both meet. Unfortunately, it was just a tiny little window of two hours. I figured there'd be plenty of time for the interview. We met in Manhattan and for the entire subway ride to my place in Brooklyn, we did nothing but talk about henna nonstop. I'm sure this very crowded, hot subway train was very confused about our conversation. Stupidly, I was afraid that maybe we wouldn't have anything to talk about for the rest of the podcast. I thought maybe we had completely exhausted all subjects. But yeah, like I said, we had two hours. We 
we talked until the very last second and I think we could have talked for another two hours. So I really hope that no one finds it boring to listen to me and know I'm completely geek out about henna and the history of henna. But what I have done is I split the interview into two parts. So this episode is the first part. It kind of ends abruptly. Um, so we were kind of in the middle of the discussion. I tried to find a very good ending point, but it was hard to do. Um, but I will edit and release the next episode of our of the podcast that's the continuation of our conversation soon thereafter. So hopefully you won't have to wait too long. We also agreed to meet and talk some more. We want to discuss his future projects in the realm of henna, but also we just had so many more topics that we wanted to, to cover. So uh, hopefully this one will be interesting to you and uh, it'll keep you hungry for more conversation between the two of us. So enough of me going on and on, and let's just get right into the interview with Noam Siena. Hello, all of my podcast listeners. I have Noam Sienna. Noam, am I even pronouncing your yeah, name correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Noam. Yeah. Okay, all right. I wasn't sure. Uh, it has so many letters and they're very confusing <laughs> letters, so I wasn't o sure. <laughs> so um, Noam and I met at my office just a little while ago, and um, we've been talking about henna the whole train ride. <laughs> so we had to run back to my place. Get the and, recorders on. Exactly, and capture all of this. So I'm basically just going to have him repeat everything that he said on the train, but without all the crying babies and the train announcements. Sounds good. And now I have a helicopter going by. So welcome to Brooklyn. Um, so, gosh, I don't even know where to start. Um, well, let's just start with like the very simple thing that all of our clients always ask us when we're henning yeah. is, um, how did you how get did, started doing henna? How did henna? you get started? How did you start? And I, I think, I mean, that's you know the, the question that we all you know, like see it coming a mile away, mm -hmm. like dread, like, please don't ask me. Um, and for me, I think it's, it's maybe I get it more frequently. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, because not only am I, um, a hen artist, which is unusual. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, and I'm also a Caucasian hen artist or an Eastern European <gasps> hen artist, yes. which is even more unusual. <laughs> and I also happen to be uh, male bodied and Jewish. So there's sort of a lot, like people are like, not expecting me at all, generally. Yeah. Um, so there's there's like an even more uh, more of a level of surprise of like, how did you become a henna artist? Of all people, right? Of all people. Yeah. Uh, a nice Jewish boy from North York. So <laughs> so so yeah, it all started. Um, like when did you first see henna? So when did you first see? So I actually remember seeing henna long before I got interested in oh, okay. doing henna when I was like a teen, probably like a, like thirteen. 14, and there's a, there's a big street festival in Toronto every year um, called the uh, the Danforth Festival. Uh, it's big street okay. festivals in August, uh, and I remember going when I we used to go every year. And I remember going and seeing a henna artist, and I thought it was really cool. And I begged my parents to let me have some henna, and they said no, 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 no. So I was like really bummed out about it, uh, and I distinctly remember that. Um, I don't even know who the artist was. It was yeah. probably some Indian artist. There's a there, the Danforth Street Festival runs through the sort of Indian area oh, of okay. Toronto. So you saw it being done. So I saw it so being you done. You got the concept. So I got the concept. Yeah, yeah. and I, I don't remember if I knew what it was, how I knew what it was, or if they explained it to me. But I, I knew what it was. Um, when I got to Brandeis University, where I started my uh, undergraduate degree in Boston, 
Um, I already knew what it was because I remember meeting uh, an internet. I was because I'm from Canada. Mm-hmm. I am an international student, obviously, in yeah. Boston, and so we have a special international student orientation where they teach us how to navigate an American supermarket and what an American <laughs> classroom looks like. And here's where the That's teacher been stands. Quite and a you, shock for you raise you. your hand. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, All your Canadian ways. Right, and I was like, oh, that's how you take something off the shelf in a supermarket. I've always <laughs> wondered. Um, well, no, but for the students who were coming from Egypt, yeah, course, you know, where I you know. don't go shopping in a supermarket, uh, it, it was very helpful <laughs> yeah, for them. Yeah, and yeah. and that's true. classrooms are not the same all over the world. A classroom yeah. in China is very different yeah. than a classroom in... in, and, in, how in function, and how you function. And how you function, exactly. That, yeah. So well, the nice thing about that, even though I, I sort of knew most of the formal stuff, was getting to meet all of these other international oh, students cool. uh, the week before everyone else comes to campus. So it's sort of a nice introduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I became very close with uh, with this one uh, uh, classmate of mine, Ishita, from uh, from directly from Bombay. Oh, cool! Uh, and uh, she took me to Henna. I think it was it was probably Diwali. It was probably uh, so like fall. Like it must have been an early Diwali, like around October or November. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were the the Hindu student group or whatever it was was having the Diwali festival. And so she's like, "No, I'm, let's go." And there was a hen artist there. Uh-huh. That was sort of the official beginning. Uh, okay. Um, and I got it done, and I loved it. <laughs> and then I got it done. I, I went out into Waltham, which is where the university is, to get it done again. And then I, I, I can't remember why, but for some reason, I decided to order a kit on the uh, internet. Okay. And I started doing it just for just for for fun. Um, and somebody said to me, "Oh, I, I was doing. Oh, I I started sort of doing it for friends." And a friend of mine ran, was the student uh, president of the Hillel organization, mm-hmm. which is the Jewish student organization. And she said, oh, we're having a Hillel festival. We're having like a, a Jewish sort of uh, festival. For, I don't remember what it was, some fundraiser. Do you want to do henna for the, the fundraiser? So I said, okay. And I'm doing henna. And somebody asks me, oh, are, are you doing henna because, uh, because you're Jewish? Huh. And I, I said, well, I'm, I'm not uh, doing henna. Because I'm Jewish, I, I am Jewish, and I am doing henna, but they're not related. And they said, oh, well, you know, there's, there are Jewish traditions to do henna. And, and that I was said, your first And that, that was my first, that was my first, and I said, <laughs> I, I don't know anything about that. I never, because my, so my family, I guess we'll talk more about this, but my family comes originally from Eastern Europe. My, my father's side of the family is um, from what's now the Ukraine, and my, my mother's side of the family is Romanian, Romanian Austrian, um, sort of Jewish, classical, Eastern mm-hmm. European Jews, what are known as Ashkenazim in Hebrew. So I'm from an Ashkenazi family, uh, which traditionally does not have, which, which right. has no tradition of, right. of henna use. It's too cold in Poland to, 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 to grow <laughs> henna. So I never heard of it uh, being part of Jewish culture. So I, I thought, oh, I should, I should really look into that because I'm very interested in Judaism and Jewish culture and I live a, a deeply Jewish life. So I, I should probably learn something about that. I actually have a, uh, saved on my computer a post from uh, remember the henna tribe forum that used to be very active before mm-hmm, Facebook mm-hmm, like was invented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, I this. so I have I saved on my computer a post from the henna tribe forum where somebody had said something about Jewish henna and I posted I posted oh I know that there are some Jews who do henna but I don't know very much about it. <laughs> uh, and I found it randomly the, the other beginning. day. Oh really? And I, and I was like I can't believe. There was a time when I would say that, but of course there was. Yeah. You know, I, there was a time when I knew nothing about henna at all. Yeah. Uh, and certainly, I, and I think it was important for me to remind myself, um, you know, especially because I, I think I, I have 
deservedly or undeservedly, uh, this reputation as like, at least the Jewish henna scholar or expert, if not the henna history scholar, I think somebody said, oh, Noam's the, I think you said our resident henna history expert or something, which, <laughs> which I, I, I feel maybe is an undeserved title. I but, don't know. Uh, there's, but there's, there's, a Jewish, there's, a, there's a Jewish folktale, there's a, Jew, a famous Jewish folktale about um, a slave who becomes a king and he, he keeps his slave clothes in a little closet mm. and every once a year he goes into this closet and, yeah. and his advisors are like why are, why are you doing that and he says to remind to remind myself that i was once a slave yeah. so uh, that's why i keep all of my photos of my right. old henna uh, yeah i think it's really helpful for for i think for everyone to sort of always remember where you're coming from yeah. so for me I, I have it saved like right at the in my henna folder on my computer oh, like right perfect. there so as soon as i open my henna folder i'm reminded like there was once a time not too long ago when uh, when in fact i, I didn't know anything um, and, and still, you know, there's still so much more to learn. So anyway, that was the beginning. Um, and so then I started researching um, uh, henna while practicing. So they mm -hmm. sort of, these are kind of the two threads, and I will return to this probably also. Yeah. But the, the two threads are sort of my my work as a henna artist and my journey as, as a, somebody who does henna for people, mm -hmm. whether professionally or, or not. And my journey as an academic and a scholar and somebody yeah. who is interested in henna from an intellectual perspective, researching the history and traditions of henna um, and how it fits into sort of a larger academic picture of, yeah. of what we know about culture and religion and, and, those, uh, and those things. Um, and those sort of two threads have crossed each other and, yeah. and, and interacted with each other. Um, and so it's been now a journey of... Well, I guess if I started in my, um, in my first year of college, then it'll be six years uh, this fall. Nice. All right, four years of college. Yeah, six years this fall. Yeah, wow. That's amazing. It, fe it, it feels like I just started yesterday. Yeah. Like, it's hard yeah. for me to believe. Like, there are now people, like, m many people, like henna artists, who, who are newer than me. And mm -hmm. that's an odd feeling. because I, I, feel, I was yeah. always the newbie, at least artistically, like, in terms of, like, I've been doing this only, you know, a little while, a year, two years, and, like, all of a sudden, that's six years yeah. I've been doing henna. Yeah. Like, but it, uh, yeah, it kind of keeps it in perspective. And I think that's also a sign of somebody who's still open to learning and growing. And um, there's so, I mean, there's so much more to, yeah. I mean, definitely, I, I think maybe we'll probably talk about this as, as an artist, I feel like I am like so at the beginning Aww. in terms of my, my work as a scholar, you know, I, I feel like I've maybe taken the first step, like I've reached the first. Yeah, it's a little bit more than the first you step. You know, but I mean, like, as a, you know, the mountain, like you're climbing yeah, the mountain. Some people like, aren't concerned about any of that, and I right, think well, you're pretty far, yeah, far down yeah, that road. Um, I mean, at least you, you have that path. You're definitely doing mm -hmm. a path. You're not still trying to choose that. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that you said when you were taught, you know, you were doing your, um, your, you know, how did I get started mm. doing henna thing? I, you know, I can, I have this on tape. So if you wanted to just play it play, for yeah. your clients yeah. while you henna, that would be so good. If we have like a tape perfect. of all of the yeah. frequently asked questions and just, just press yeah, play. Yeah, just press you know, like, like have like, a little iPhone app and they can just that, press. You know, the that's button. not a bad idea. How did actually? you get started? How did you get started? Well, you know, where was, does henna come from? Yeah. Like, <laughs> how long does it you, last? Right? Like, oh, like they would save, save so much wear oh and tear God. on our vocal cords. You know? And also, I don't know about you, but when I'm doing henna, I'm actually creating something. Yeah, I, yeah you're working. So like yeah. an idiot when yeah, you can't words focus. start coming no, exactly, out of my mouth. Exactly. So then, or your design starts looking like crap because yeah, you're busy talking. and then you stop and it slows yeah, me down. Yeah, and yeah. so often I'll try and do both at once and then when I give my description how'd you get started doing henna I sound like a robot right like, oh well I first started da, da, yeah, da, exactly, da, and they're exactly. like wow this lady is <laughs> scintillating 
Anyways, you were saying in my intro. Yes, in your intro, you were talking about, um, you were saying that there were all these things that made you stand out. Mm. Like, how did you, of all people, right, yeah, get exactly. started? And so one of the things you said is that you're a man. Um, a man. You're in a man's body. I am. I am. <laughs> um, so... Why are there so few men in Hannah? And and actually, this is interesting because I just got an email um, two days ago. Somebody mm-hmm. said my friend or my cousin or something um, is interested in Hannah, but he's a guy and he oh. wants to know like why there aren't many men in Hannah. And I had already written oh. down this question, oh, so perfect. this is perfect. perfect. So you can answer okay. this why? young aspiring Hannah why artist. Are there... Well, okay, so definitely my answer to him would be like, go for it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't need to tell you there are. Not a lot, but there there aren't no men right. working yeah, in Hannah today. Why are there I mean, so few? Why are there so few? I mean, there's certainly the few that are are quite good. So I don't think it's a question yeah. of there's something intrinsic about womanhood that makes women more suited to be henna artists just than like, men. Well, how I, can you do henna? You're a white guy. Right. Like there's exactly right. There's there's, You're there's white. right. You're it's a not guy. like it's not a skill. Like like if you know there's some things that I think I'm going to defer to you know like, like having breast babies feeding. for example. Yeah, breastfeeding. Breast like, I'm going to defer to to women yeah. uh, for for okay. that. Well, that's that's um, big of you. Yeah. Then you know like <laughs> I'll just uh, but but um but for so why why if you men henna? Well, I think I think really I think into any question about henna really it, it goes back to the cultural roots of henna as as a traditional practice henna as um sort of as a as a medium for western art in in north america is is really maybe two decades old i i would say maybe 30 between for 15 years and and you probably started close close to the beginning yeah i mean like the time when loretta room's book came out that was what 90 90 well, she, I think her book came out in like '96. I think I started in '96. Yeah, '98. Yeah. So, um, so that was kind of like the big boom when Madonna got exactly, it. Exactly right. So, so it's really yeah. not. So it's so there are really still very deep roots <laughs> in the places where henna comes from, and yeah. and in in places where henna comes from, oh. and in the places where henna comes from, uh, henna is seen as a cosmetic often as a women's cosmetic. As Wait, oh, and I don't in mean cosmetic where it comes from. Right, yeah. in countries where it comes from, it it's seen. Not a hundred percent of the time. As ornamentation. As something, right? As accessory. As, 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 a, as an accessory, as as ornament, as a, as a cosmetic. That's something that enhances femininity. Mm-hmm. Now, usually, but not always, femininity is correlated with being a woman. That is, women want to be feminine and men don't. That's yeah. normally yeah, yeah, yeah. not a hundred percent of the time. And yeah. there are cases, and I actually but have a, a presentation about this, like a henna presentation <laughs> awesome. about what I call gender variance and henna, mm-hmm. cases where henna is used specifically to mark um, what in the West we, we would call gender variance, something like akin to but not identical like to frying trans your, frying your identities. F- flying your freak flag kind of thing. Right, but more, more organ- not organized, but more, more culturally and rooted in the sense that there, the that there is a cultural identity. For example, in, mm. in the beginning of the, in the beginning of the Islamic war, world, sort of, and we're talking like seventh, eighth mm. centuries in, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, there was a, there were three social categories of gender. There were men, there were women, and there was a third category of people called muhannathun, who are male-bodied people who mm. occupy a feminine Space or who who present a role a, or so not a feminine role in the sense that they're not women and it's clear that they're not women but they're not men either and they will wear women's clothing they mm. will um, 
like the hijra in India. Like similar to the hijra in India, um, and they, is and it like a the hijra. Or... That's a difficult question, and, I, and even for hijra today, it's. I mean, you can ask yeah. them, and some of them yeah. will say yes, it's a choice. Some of them will say no, it's not a choice, and 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 there's a very complex sort of web of factors of biological and social and yeah. cultural and individual and personal and familial and all of the sort of different factors that that interact to create the circumstances where somebody will say, I am going to be a hijra or a muhanath or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And like the hijra, the muhanathun had a distinct social rule, which is they, they, do, they can do certain things that neither men nor women can do. Are they are they gay or is this like more of like I mean, what that, we would call transgender? It, it, it's sort of it's it's both and neither in that the the, the way that we construct sexuality categories of sexuality yeah. and categories of gender in the West trinary. are are binary <laughs> and and non overlapping. Like we think yeah. like okay there are gay people and there are straight people. There may also be some bisexual people, but we don't really pay too much attention right. to them. And, and dressers right, are and, gay and, and are gay right exactly. Yeah. And then there are there Which are. Is, Men and there are women, and, and there are some men who used to be women, but they're actually men now. And there's yeah. very little space for people. It has to be one way. There's very little space yeah. to occupy a middle ground. Yeah. Um, so there are there are, I mean, even in India, there are hijra and there or there are muhanathun in, in Arabia who are engaging in sexual activity with men. Mm-hmm. Does that make them gay? Well, they're not really men who are having sex with men. Yeah. They're really yeah. muhanathun. Yeah. So so th- the category of gay. Is sort of a difficult one to and apply. Also, and also in the East, I'm putting, uh, you guys right, can't yeah. hear me right. out quote, there in Radio quote, Land, right. I'm quote, doing air quotes. Unquote, right, exactly. <laughs> um, gay is not really so much a label in the East. Exactly. It's, you know, like in, I know in Morocco, like if you have sex with men, it's almost like a biological necessity because all the women have to stay virgins and maybe you don't want to go see a prostitute. So you just have gay sex. It's just sex. It's, it's not, just sex, exactly. It doesn't so make there, there, you what thing. there is, and this is a fairly common construction. Actually, this was a, the fairly the most common construction of sexuality throughout the world up until up until really the the nineteen hundreds when people began thinking about sexual identity as an identity, mm-hmm. right? That is, I'm attracted to men as a man and that is something inherent and ineluctable about my own identity i mean the whole idea of a personal identity that is unique and individual is a fairly modern phenomenon anyway but the the idea of sexual activity is is it's an activity that you do and you can play certain roles you can play an active role or you can play a passive role generally it's it's more uh generally it's not always let me think of the right way Generally speaking, it is not regarded highly to take the passive, the passive role, role as a male. Because but there are, but the there are always people who do it. The role of women in right, in exactly. Our it is, and, and this is this is sort of not related to hen at all. But yeah. one of my other areas <laughs> we'll of interest is, that. A, is as a as a Jewish scholar, as a mm-hmm. biblical scholar, and gender in the Bible, and gender in Judaism. And one of um, one of my uh, one of the people that I've that I've learned with Rabbi Steve Greenberg, who's a an Orthodox rabbi, also identifies as gay. Um, and, and a very profound thinker and, a, and an extraordinary writer uh, has a sort of a saying that I, that I thought was a really nice encapsulation. He, he said that um, biblical homophobia, right? He, what he's referring to is the, the biblical and sort of enlarge the, the historical mm. aversion to male-male sex. Mm-hmm. He says biblical homophobia is one room in the larger hotel of biblical misogyny. <laughs> Right, which is to say, <laughs> yeah, it's only yeah, exactly. shameful to have sex like a woman if it's shameful to be a woman. Yeah, exactly. And in a world where being a woman is no longer shameful, then 
having, and, that, and, and you can prove that, by the way, if I can go into biblical studies for a moment, if you look at the prohibition in Leviticus on male-male intercourse, the exact wording is one should not have sex with a man the way one has sex with a woman. Right, which is to say, it is the, the, the basis of the prohibition is it is shameful to treat a man like a woman right. because it is shameful to be a woman. Right. Yeah, exactly. If you could be a man. Yeah, so let's so, transcend all of that. Right. So if you can break down, so what Rabbi Greenberg would say is if you could if we can if we can dissemble, if we can demolish the, mm -hmm. the misogyny hotel, then then the, the, the homophobia suite is yeah. gonna go with it. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I, I thought that was a, a sort of a nice me uh, metaphor. And so, where I thought you were going was yeah. that, you know, it's just a room your sexuality is just a room in the hotel that is you. And, oh, also true. That's also you know, like, yeah, exactly. Do you like spicy food? Is right. that a, is that an identity? Is that a culinary identity that a you have to be identity. branded yeah, with it, for the rest it, of your it, life? It starts to get once you start <laughs> breaking down it, it sort of the bits and pieces of your identity, it, yeah. it becomes very complex. How yeah. much of who you are has to do with your biology versus how much has to do with your family versus how much right. has to do with where you're raised, when you're raised, how you're raised, and random things that happen to you. You know, you, you, you once ate, you know, a spicy dish that was also spoiled and you got really sick and you never ever and wanted never, to eat spicy yeah, again. Yeah. That, that happened to you totally randomly and yet yeah, that's exactly. really deeply affected yeah. the way that you eat. So that, you know, Anyway, the, the larger point that I, that I think I was trying to make about yes. Muhanathun is yes. that they, one of the things that marked them as Muhanathun was henna, right? That is, oh. if you see a, if you saw a, a man, that is somebody who was clearly male-bodied, broad-shouldered, oh, okay. uh, you know, uh, Adam's apple, like there are certain biological features that mark yeah. male bodies. Yeah. You see somebody with a male body wearing, let's say, a dress, or, or a typical woman's dress, a woman's robe rather than a man's robe, mm -hmm. with long curled hair, with cold eyes, K-O-H-L, cold <laughs> eyes. Um, He's using the, the universal hand gesture for yeah, coal yeah. The in finger your across eyes, the, yes. the eye. Um, and henned hands, mm -hmm. right? Those are the three, this is the three things that always go together. Mm -hmm. Hair, eyes, and hands, mm -hmm. right? Long curled hair, cold eyes, and henned hands are in many, different circumstances, including in, in 8th century Arabia, including in contemporary India for the mm -hmm. Hijra, henna is mm -hmm. the same thing, uh, for uh, in Morocco, in Spain in the Middle Ages, this was a way of marking somebody as occupying an intermediate gender mm -hmm. or an intermediate role of somebody who is not male but is performing an identity that is related to femininity but is not female. So it's not, it's not yeah. you know, you, can you call them gay men? Not really. Can you call them trans women? Not really. They're, yeah. they're, they're not. Yeah. Although, but you know, some of them did. Those are exactly. Those are Western kind of absurd. Um, anyway, that. that okay. But now I would like to answer your question what about was my question men, men and henna, right? <laughs> yeah. Why, henna. Are there, why okay. are there so, so few men so, and henna? Okay. So, so what I'm trying to illustrate here is that uh, henna has a very strong cultural association, almost universally, with femininity. Yeah. And so men do get henna on special ritual occasions for their marriage, um, in Jewish communities in, in some areas before becoming a bar mitzvah, before becoming mm -hmm. an adult, mm -hmm. a, a male adult. Jewish yeah. boys would have a henna ceremony, um, you know, for, for... Muslim boys being circumcised. Muslim boys for circumcised, or when they right. memorize the Quran. And men, right, become a hafiz, yeah. So, so there are a number of ritual occasions mm -hmm. when men might get, might get henna, but that's, that's sort of an exception from daily life. And there are a lot of things that happen in ritual occasions or in ceremonies that sort of deviate from the normal uh, social uh, social setting, um, but on a, on a daily basis, on or on a, on a regular basis, you see women getting henna. There's only yeah. really one culture that I like. If I think of um, okay, somebody, a, a couple is getting married, um, who's going to get henna? 
it's always either going to be the bride mm -hmm. or the bride and the groom. Mm -hmm. And the groom's hen is always, you know, a little bit less significant. Yeah. It's a little bit smaller. It's like a he, symbolic. He, he, symbolic. He doesn't get the same kind of designs or he doesn't get as much. Mm -hmm. You know, there are very few places where the, the groom's henna and the bride's henna are really equal in significance. Yeah. Yeah. The really the only place that I can think of is um, in, in the Tuareg culture in, 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 uh, in North Africa, mm. where um, you, you may know about this or... Um, I don't really know that much about the so Tuareg's use of henna. So I know that they do a lot of the solid palm They do, they, right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but one of the, if you look, there are a couple of ethnographic articles on Tuareg wedding ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's really important is that, that the Tuareg uh, groom's henna ceremony is really quite important. And, um, and it, it almost eclipses the, the henna ceremony of the oh, bride. Oh, interesting. Um, I had no idea. And it's interesting, it's interesting for me because gender in Tuareg society is fascinating. As you know, yeah. men wear a veil. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as, uh, sort of and then the women, the women. I, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could I could digress on this, but I think like the women have like a choice of the men that they're going to marry. Right. There, there, there's, there's some, there are a lot of interesting things very, about, about gender roles in the, Tuareg culture yeah. than their, from their milieu. So, um, so that's really the only exception that I can think yeah. of. Everywhere else that, that I've seen, um, the henna ceremony is really strongly associated with either performing femininity as a woman or, 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 or as somebody else, or, or for ritual occasions. So, yeah. so what, that play, what that becomes then is men are, are discouraged, you know, much like, think of, um, you know, why do you see so few men wearing skirts? Outside of Scotland. Outside of Scotland. Yeah. Those are kilts. That's right. You know, don't, <laughs> yes, don't, I know, don't call I know. it I know. Scotman's uh, uh, yes. kilts, right? But like, um, like why do so few men wear skirts? There's nothing inherently wrong, yeah. I, I, I would say. It's There's nothing inherently female a about it. Yeah, and I've, I've worn skirts several times and I find them really quite comfortable. <laughs> yes. And, and, but why? Who doesn't want to just put on a muumuu on a exactly. day, on a hot day like, like this? Exactly. On a day like today, like, Lord, it, it would be lovely. <laughs> but what happens is there's this, there's this notion that Either if you're putting on a skirt, you're either a woman, mm -hmm. you're trying to look like a woman, or you're like in a play, or you're mm -hmm. performing some unusual occasion, or you're right. you're graduating, so you wear a long robe or something. You're in some removal, but ordinarily you don't see men wearing skirts yeah. in our society. So I think similarly you don't see men either receiving henna, yeah. and if they're not receiving henna, why would they be doing henna? Yeah. Um, I mean that's really the answer that I can come up with. I, I you know I know there are a lot of people and who like to talk about henna as like this feminine art form of connecting to our mothers and like, I'm using my like sort of yeah. breathy Your goddess voice, right? And like, feely. look, I, I don't mean any disrespect for, for whom, to, to people for whom that holds a lot of meaning. And, and I certainly myself have a deep respect for mothers and goddess and, and, and things like that. Um, but I, I do find it essentialist in the sense of it's positing that there's that there's some kind of essential femaleness that is always true across every culture and across every time period in the world. Yeah. And we know that, that gender is constructed differently all over the world. And yeah. we know that, that gender roles have been thought of differently throughout history. And and to say that there's something intrinsic about doing henna or receiving henna that yeah. that that is about the woman's place in the right. world, I, I think is a is a little specious to say yeah. uh that there is such a thing as a woman's place in the world. It, it's yeah. actually unknowingly, I think, buying into the same kind of essentialist arguments about gender that that really hurt women and yeah. men, ultimately. And it also demeans henna. And it demeans henna. You know, like if you say, well, a man who has sex in the woman's position is somehow 
you know, unworthy or right. lower than, you know, henna if it's just a woman's thing. So what does that say about me as, yeah. as a male henna artist? Yeah, and also right. what does it say about henna? Like if what you love henna, yeah. let's not let's not demean it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but but there are, I, I think there, it is true to say that, you know, we're starting to see more and more, I mean, I could probably name five male henna artists off the top of my head. How many of them are gay, though? Or how, let's say I, how that's many an of interesting them are straight. question. That, that's an that's interesting question. When I, that, I did that same calculation yeah. in my head, and I think I maybe know one straight there, male there are, henna artist. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think, I think it's still, I think it, well, I think, well, so I, if I had to explain that, I would say it's probably because. Um, queer or gay people, men who are already comfortable playing with or subverting gender yeah. norms yeah. are people who are going to, like, I'm sure there are plenty of straight guys who are interested in henna. I mean, think, I mean, you've yeah. probably hennaed yeah. hundreds of straight guys of all ages. More, I think I've hennaed more um, gay men than I've hennaed straight men. But that may be, you know, I, I mean, live in New York City. You live so. in New York City. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think of like... At, at a festival, there are not yeah. not equally, but there are certainly plenty of yeah. of. I mean, they might choose different designs because yeah. they're socially conditioned exactly. to see I flowers. As, logo. Right, right, right. I'm but, sorry, I don't know. But I'm sure I've that. met I've met plenty of young men mm-hmm. who are fascinated by henna. I used to teach yeah. middle school, and I had my middle school male students were equally fascinated Especially by henna. At that age, because uh, they're not as they're not quite right. By the, those gender, you know, norms. are any of them going to grow up to be henna artists? Maybe, yeah. but I think the ones that are already predisposed to allow themselves to explore ways in which they subvert gender norms yeah. are more likely to, to, to allow themselves to do something like start learning henna versus yeah. people who feel really constrained by like, I'm a straight man, I have to conform to a particular expectation of masculinity and that are, could be are less likely. And that could be, and, and that's that sad, you know. like, I, don't join Glee Club right, or, right. Um, you know, don't go into the theater, don't even be artistic. Right, how many actually. male, how many male musical theater performers yeah. are there who are straight? My art classes in Your art classes school in were school? all exactly. girls. So, I mean, I... guys, but they were kind of, you know, they were like... The, they were either... The really outsiders. free thinkers, yeah. or they're gay. Yeah, or, are, they just or they're outsiders. just outsiders. They were right. out, they were cast outs from right. popular groups. Right, and whatever. so this is like a, this is an illustration yeah. of of a general principle, which is that patriarchy hurts everybody, including men. That's yeah. sort of a, yeah. a feminist yeah, exactly. principle, right? Is yeah. that the patriarchy is bad for everybody? But um, anyway, that that is a long answer to yes. uh, to a, to an excellent question well, about about men, men and henna. And, but that and henna, at least still, today. Yeah, we can we could go on and on. So. Now there are a lot of male henna artists in India, like a lot of mm. the street artists. Are, yeah, that's all. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, men, thank you for and it. you even see men at weddings. Like I can understand yeah, the street yeah. artist thing because you know it's, it's a not job. it's not culturally acceptable for women to be sitting out on the street, exactly. interacting with right. strangers and maybe even. Well, interestingly, you don't see that in Morocco. No, that is right? very that's interesting. That's the gender but dynamic. Those there. women are. I wouldn't say they're social outcasts, but they but the, are right. a they're, special case. They are, and there's and actually they're not um, respected by society as you're much right. as they, they, they they're putting themselves out of. Uh, well, there, there, there's actually there's a whole there's a, a thesis uh, a scholar named. Oh, what's her Spurls. name? I have it right yeah. over there. I have it. Oh, you do really? Uh, yeah, I have it somewhere. A hard copy. Um, Spurls was P- Kelly Kelly Patricia. Yeah, I think Patricia so. Kelly and she Spurls. was up in uh, Boston. Was she? Was she? Yeah. Maybe. Um, but yes, yeah, she wrote her yeah. whole thesis on, yeah, exactly. on female artists, henna, henna and artists. And I mean, yeah, just them, that, that act of being out in right. public and dealing with strangers. But the men in India, yeah. they but, certainly do. They work yeah. on the streets. And many of them are quite good. You know, yeah, I mean, I've yeah, seen pictures. I've seen they're, videos they're, of it. It's incredible. Right. So, I mean, I, I think it would be interesting to interview one of them. Yeah. You know, to see, like, what... You know, what Listeners out there, if you know any Indian street henna artists, get them on Skype and I'll interview them. That would be 
would be a blast. That would be that would, that would be, be a blast. Awesome. That would be really interesting. All right, someday, or maybe I'll just go there and interview them. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so that I guess that answers why there's so few men in. I mean, I don't know if it's an answer more or more of just an observation. Yeah. Right, which is like, yeah, it's true. There are there are so few men in Hannah. I mean, there are, there are very few men in 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 musical theater or in fashion design or in other yeah. things that we've yeah. identified yeah, as culturally. True. And I think Hopefully even today, even yeah. though we're not living in a, even though we're not living in a traditionally henna using society, I think many of us, I mean, not us, like the two mm-hmm. of us, but like many people around us in our society still see henna as particularly feminine. Yeah. It's an ornament. The whole, the whole idea of bodily, um, like of, of sort of making your body beautiful, yeah. right? The idea of beauty, I think is something that unfortunately is still culturally tied to femininity, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. if a guy spends too long in the mirror, it's it, like, you know, what's wrong? Suspect, you know, like, yeah. a suspect, right? Yeah. Like, what's wrong with you? Or if he grooms himself grooms in himself too much, this or... new ca- gender category called metrosexual. Metrosexual, right? Or, or the, I mean, I'm more, but I, I think it's starting to break down. More and more you see metrosexual, you know, sort of a fashion or androgyny is more and more becoming, I think, fashionable. You see yeah, it in the fashion world. True. You see it. Um, and like, and again, when I was teaching middle school, I, I, I was in middle school uh, not that long ago, let's just say. Um, <laughs> But even even in the past fifteen years, my memories of of what was socially appropriate yeah. and not appropriate for boys to do in middle school, yeah. and a lot of the gender policing that I remember from my youth, has mm-hmm. has it hasn't disappeared. But I start I've started to see cracks in Shifting, working with adolescents. Yeah. You see, like wow, there's like a a twelve year old boy wearing like very tight purple jeans. If a boy tried to wear that, and and they're cool, like that's the cool kid with the floppy Justin Bieber hair and the pink, you know, t-shirt. Like if a kid had tried to wear that when I was in seventh grade, they would have, they would have, they, you know, they would have not made it. They would be a bloody pop, right? So, so, you know, (laughs) kudos, right? Like power, power, power to you. So I I think we're starting to see a shift and I think we'll start, we'll continue to see more and more um, things like henna, you know, as, as part of this like growing acknowledgement that like all people have the right to make themselves feel beautiful in yeah. whatever way and if that's wearing purple jeans rock on if that's yeah. covering your hands in henna rock on if that's like making like having this ridiculous floppy justin bieber haircut you know like okay fine sorry but no no it's fine it's <laughs> yeah. fine yeah. <laughs> that's I'm not gonna look, but that's fine it's yeah. fine it's fine you know you that's allowed. be that's you okay. you yes. can be you be a believer <laughs> <sighs> next question <laughs> yes please let's move on so um I feel like my role here is to just like give you little triggers. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> just let me just and let, let you go. go. Let you yeah. go. Um, and then stop so, me when you've had enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, I I could just go on forever. I just um, you know, I have limited space on my hard drive, so I'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um. So I want to talk about henna history myths. Okay. And what are some right. of them like? I sit there doing henna for brides, and and um, you know, I'm surrounded by Indians and um. And they say, oh, where did you learn to do henna? And I said, well, I'm self-taught, but the first place I ever saw it being done was Morocco. Right. And I can't tell you how many times they just they do henna cluck. in yeah. Morocco. Some Mor- of them just go put like <laughs> like this, they don't like they're actually yeah you this know, girl like, just made stuff right up, yeah up Morocco out of there, sure Morocco, sure yeah, right, and like, I've actually had people know. you know my age who say they do it in Morocco. Like, I can understand somebody who spent yeah. their entire life in India. Yeah, yeah. Right, but, like, has, somebody growing up in the United States, yeah. say. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, so that's one of those funny things. That's, yeah. That so that's a myth. I don't think, in India. I don't think End I even story. need to bust that. I think, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think we all know yeah, yeah, yeah. that, um, so that let's, that's not So that one's out of the way. That's so busting. what are some other myths? Um, okay, some other myths. Um, so I think one of the, the big myths is that, 
henna is tied to a particular religion. Yeah. It, it'll either be Hindu or Muslim. And yeah. I most frequently get Muslim, maybe because of the, just the circles that I run in, and yeah. maybe in more Indian circles you get Hindu. But a lot of people say, oh, isn't henna a Muslim thing? And um, I'm Christian. I can't oh, I'm Christian. Get I can't get, yeah, that's another. So let me, so let me bust that. Um, bust it open. Bu bust that. Okay, so there's two issues that I want to bust sort of in the same, yeah. with the same needle. One is that henna is a Muslim thing, and the other is that Jews or Christians can't get henna, and I'm going to specifically talk about tattoos. So, um, henna is a cultural practice and it's, and it's, it's found in a geographic range, the geographic range of the henna plant, where the henna plant grows. Yeah. And that's a range that, as you may know, covers a geographic area from Morocco all the way across North Africa through Western, Central, and all the way into South Asia. Yeah. And that's, that's and a phenomenal. And all the places that, that, that I mean. traded with them, too. And, like, and, Indonesia right. probably doesn't grow henna, but no. well, they yeah, traded. They certainly, exactly. Or, or even, and even places in Europe, like, um, we do have, I mean, people think of henna. Like Albania. Like, exactly, the Balkans. Where the, I have, where the Ottomans went. The Ottomans went, yeah. you find, and Jewish, I mean, at least I can speak for Jewish communities. You have Jewish communities using henna, you know, as far north as, as, um, as uh, as Bulgaria, oh. right? Which is re we really really in Europe, right? Like yeah. you know, you say okay, sense. Turkey is sort of on the borderline. Yeah. And Bulgaria is really in Europe. Nobody can yeah. argue with that. Yeah. Um, you know, and so Bulgaria, Albania, Macedonia, all of these communities um, did have henna use. And also, henna supposedly didn't grow in Morocco; that it was brought there. This is one thing that I've read. Right. I, I'm not a like a, a historical botanist, um, so I can't say. Yeah, that, that's, I, I don't know if I can comment on that question yeah. because um, I, I do need to do more research on that. But, but to sort of finish my thread here, that um, all of the cultural groups in those areas, mm -hmm. even if they don't continue it today, at one point used henna. And that includes Jews, it includes Muslims, it includes Christians, it includes Zoroastrians, it includes uh, the Baha'i faith, it includes Yazidis and other Sikh. Sikh groups, Hindu groups. I'm sort of trying to go geographically. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, basically any religion that you can think of, you know, and of course, before all these religions, the, the various indigenous and pagan religions of the area also had yeah. henna traditions. Pre so, pre you know, pre-Islamic yeah. or, or pre-Christian uh, pre uh, traditions. So, so you know, and, and what's, what's, what I feel very strongly uh, is important for people to know is that henna is used by all of these religions, but it doesn't belong to any one of them. Like, there is nothing mm. about henna that makes it specifically Muslim as a practice in the way that, for example reading the Qur'an might be considered, ritually studying the Qur'an might be right. considered a Muslim practice in the way right. that ritually studying the Torah could be a Jewish practice. So if I found a community of people who were ritually studying the Torah, I, I would suspect that they were at least involved in Judaism in some way. <laughs> Whereas with henna, you, there's really no need for that assumption. Henna yeah. really is a, something, a cultural practice that each religious group adapted for its own needs. So for example, you have henna ceremonies for a boy, as I mentioned, becoming a bar mitzvah. That's a uniquely Jewish ceremony. Only Jews become bar mitzvah. It's a Jewish concept. By the way, for all of you listeners, <laughs> bar mitzvah means child of the commandments. That is someone who's responsible for the commandments. It, it refers to the child. That is, a, a boy becomes a bar mitzvah. He becomes a legal adult when he turns 13 and a day, regardless of whether that is marked by any ritual or not. Similarly, a girl becomes bat mitzvah. She becomes legally responsible for the commandments, whether or not she celebrates it with a party or with a service or with anything else. So 
people saying I'm going to a bar mitzvah is really <laughs> technically incorrect. You really should say I'm going to a bar mitzvah celebration. Uh-huh. Having a bar mitzvah is also incorrect. You do you be, you become a bar mitzvah. Okay. You do not have a bar mitzvah. You do not go to a bar mitzvah. You do not get a bar mitzvah, and you certainly do not get bar mitzvahed. Okay, <laughs> that that is certainly uh, something that bothers okay. me. And I'm writing notes, guys. Writing I notes. Hope you're all and and for the record, the plural of bar mitzvah is b'nai mitzvah. So one bar mitzvah, two b'nai mitzvah, not bar mitzvahs. Anyway, that's a, a, your Hebrew lesson for today. Uh, the, the point is, that's a, a Jewish ceremony. So mm-hmm. it, it's a, illogical. It's completely illogical to say, oh, well, henna is a Muslim thing that the Jews just borrowed when the Jews are using it for intrinsically and uniquely Jewish purposes, and Jewish the Jews holidays. Got there first. Well, and in many places, and in many places, the Jews were there for sure, pre Islamic. Uh, the, Jews, the Jewish communities are, mm-hmm. are pre Islamic communities yeah. in, in places like Morocco. Or, and their uh, use of henna was before the. As far as the, we can tell. Before, before Islam. The, yeah, yeah I mean, we, we have some records of Jewish honey use before Islam, for sure. Not a huge amount, but, mm. but enough to see that, that, that even if Islam did spread and support the use of henna, and, and certainly it did, um, it was drawing on pre-existing cultural traditions. That, that, that much is very clear. Mm. Some of the, and some of the early, if you look at some of the earliest records of henna use in Islamic literature, they're referring to henna use by non-Muslims. They say, oh, this one time, you know, uh, these Jewish and pagan women were doing henna. You know, and, and so this is an early Islamic source, but it's saying, they're, they're acknowledging that, that, that the use of henna is something that already existed in the, the pre-Islamic world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first myth, is that, is that just like there are, there, there are Muslim henna ceremonies, or I would say there are henna ceremonies that are unique to the Muslim community, as there are henna ceremonies that are unique to the Jewish community, to the Hindu community, to the Sikh community, to the Zoroastrian community, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I wouldn't say that it belongs to any one religion, that it's used and it's been adapted for use by every, you know, if I could use a, an analogy from biology, right, it's incorrect to say that um, humans come from monkeys, right? Humans and monkeys share a common ancestor, ev- evolutionarily speaking, right? If we're talking about Dharma. So similarly, Muslim, Jew- Jewish henna ceremonies don't come from Muslim henna ceremonies. Mm. Jewish henna ceremonies and Muslim henna ceremonies are descended from a common ancestor of sort of the, the generic cloud of Moroccan culture that is then sort of drawn down and adapted by each religious or cultural community in the area. That's myth number one. Myth number two, about tattoos. Henna is not a tattoo. I don't need to tell all of you this. You all know I that. Can't stand I can't stand that. That's, yeah, that's my the worst, right? Like I won't even say henna tattoo. I know thing. some people will, but like, I refuse you refuse. To. I refuse. Yeah. Um, but you, but it looks like a tattoo. Okay, it, no, doesn't. it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> it, like, just stop saying that. But there's a, there's a prohibition against tattooing. Okay, that's true. That much is true. There is a prohibition in Leviticus against tattooing. Um, See so if I can bust a third myth while I'm at it. Uh, if you have tattoos as a Jew, you are allowed to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. You are there allowed. Is no affirmative. Th- affirmative. There is no law. Newsflash. There is news no flash. rabbi who has the authority to deny somebody burial in a Jewish cemetery if that person is legally Jewish. Uh, legally, I mean Jewishly legally Jewish. Which is to say, <laughs> if by Jewish law you are Jewish, which okay. means either you were born oh, of a I Jewish mother yes. or you converted to Judaism with a rabbi, right. then you are legally Jewishly what's called halachically Jewish. There is nothing that you can do to rescind that uh, identity short of formally renouncing Judaism and converting to another religion. And tattoo, tattooing your you, body does you not... You can tattoo 
your body while eating a pork and cheese sandwich on Yom Kippur, and you can still be buried in a Jewish cemetery. They might not be happy about it. And probably they, the eulogy, pork and cheese sandwiches will get you in that cemetery real quick. They're, they're, look, when somebody dies and they're buried in a Jewish cemetery, they do not ask whether you ever ate a pork sandwich. They do not ask if you ever you know, drove to synagogue. They do not ask if you ever uh, you know, had sex on Yom Kippur. Right. Um, <laughs> they just assume you're Jewish. We're going to bury you. We're not going to ask questions and because it's up tattoos. To you to deal with. Because if tattoos happen to be visible, yeah. you know people sort of get squeamish. But on the books, there is no law that will allow you to deny burial. Okay. Anyway, that being said, there is certainly a cultural myth, and Jews perpetuate it as much as non-Jews yeah. that tattoos sort of are something that good Jewish people should avoid. Um, Where does that come from? Then? Well, it, it, there is a, as I said, there is a prohibition. So, so technically, it is. I mean. It has the same status as eating pork. Eating oh, pork okay. and tattoos are both forbidden by Jewish okay, law. Gotcha. That being said, there are Jews who choose to eat pork and right. or have tattoos. And and that's their choice. And and I'm not gonna, you know, judge one way or the other what their choices are religiously speaking. I'm happy to support them in their Jewish journeys if they would like to learn more <laughs> one way or the other as a Jewish educator. Um, but there's this squeamishness around body art, around tattoos. And so then what you see is when people are, when Jewish communities unfamiliar with henna see henna, they start saying, whoa, that sort of is like a tattoo because it's drawing on the body and we're sort of wiki, you know, we're sort of like edgy about tattoos. Um, Let's just stay away. No Jewish community, and I I have done some research, no Jewish community that that has a tradition of henna use, as far as I can tell, ever made any connection between tattooing and henna, or between the probe, like there is no record that I have found in all of my research of any Jewish community in a henna using context that said we're not really sure about doing henna because it's like a tattoo. What about I've never uh, seen it. What about Islam, since they also forbid tattoos? Um, do, you, do you know of any um, regarding henna? of henna? I've never, I've never heard of such a yeah. thing. Uh, there is with Islam, it gets more complicated because there's there there is a stricter prohibition in Islam about about images and about representations of particular things right, like pictures. Right. And so there are scholars I have seen, I mean, again, I'm not an expert on Islam, but I, I have seen some scholars suggesting that if you're going to get henna, it would be better to get either very simple abstract designs or just plain yeah. sort of fingernails or palms yeah. and not sort of pictures of things, which, which is yeah. certainly, I think, yeah. a fair, a fair yeah. thing to say. But Jewishly speaking, I, 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 I and, and the same applies with Christianity. There's no reason to refrain from henna because of the prohibition on tattoos. So, so people you say, and, I, and I've done plenty of like I actually had one one of the worst, you know, bridal ceremonies that I ever did. The bride was totally lovely, and the mother was a total, what's the mother of the bridezilla like gotcha. total, total. Um, no, I'm so sorry. It was the mother of the groom. That's what it was. It was oh, a, it okay. was a the bride had converted to Judaism and was marrying a Jewish man. And uh, and wanted to have a henna ceremony because she had done she she had done a lot of work in Morocco and she really loved henna and uh, and she was now joining the Jewish people and she thought what better way to acknowledge my joining the Jewish people with something that I love about about Morocco and henna and have a henna ceremony and the mother of the groom just was having none of it she oh, said she God. said oh it's so nice that you're having a henna ceremony of course we don't do that you know that's not a Jewish thing we don't do that and here I am sitting there like trying to trying not to say anything because yeah. it's the wedding and yeah, the mother yeah. and the groom and I don't want to start making tensions but it was yep. just it was just so uh, I, I mean I thought it was quite rude but but she was really reacting from a gut place of we don't do this right and I, I've seen it but 
it's unfounded. It's totally yeah. unfounded. Um, it just historic. I mean, just it's not a fact. Like historically speaking, we do do it. Like yeah. we being Jews, yeah, yeah. you know. I think if people. If you want to lump all of you together, right. Yes, we do. We do, and in yeah. fact, you know, I mean, in fact, um, you know, people have this image of Jews being from Europe. Which, yeah. if I can bust another Jewish unrelated to Hannah, it's a very American like, thing. Just and I, I, so it, to connect it to Hannah, I think it's related to the thing about Hannah coming from India. In America, in North America, Canada and the United States, the most visible henna-using population has been the Indian diaspora. There are yeah. just there are more yeah. Indian people, and they're more visible in America yeah. than Moroccans, yeah. say, or Yemeni oh, people. Yeah, so people associate that. Similarly, there are more Jews of Eastern European descent in North America than there are Jews from Morocco. Yeah. So people assume that Jews come from Eastern Europe. Yeah. Of course, originally that's not the case. But even even if it is the case that most recently some Jews come from Eastern Europe. Um, historically speaking, Europe and Eastern Europe was on the periphery of the Jewish world, geographically and culturally. Yeah. The majority, I mean, the, the, if you look at what are the centers of Jewish culture and life, what are the places where Jewish vibrant cultural production, literature, poetry, philosophy was being produced? Jerusalem, starting mm -hmm. in, in Jerusalem, moving to Babylon, yeah, Babylonia, Baghdad. where the Talmud was written, modern-day Baghdad, moving to uh, Cairo, to Egypt, where in the Middle Ages, the heart of the Jewish world was really in Egypt, mm -hmm. um, and that's the Cairo Geniza testifies to the, the immense importance that Cairo had in the medieval Jewish world, moving to places like Morocco mm -hmm. um, or, or, Spain. or Spain. It was only in the 16 and 1700s, really, with the sort of decline of the Ottoman Empire and the beginning of, of serious Jewish cultural production in Europe, the yeah. places like Poland and, and, yeah. and, and the Ukraine and yeah. Hungary, which were always like backwaters of the Jewish world, like, mm -hmm. like really villages, yeah. uh, became centers, not to, not to demean the fact that there was not Jewish culture in, in, in Germany in the Middle Ages. That's like, not true. Yeah. Jewish, medieval Jewish Europe, what, had has certainly its own cultural history, but but it being the center of the Jewish world, certainly not. Yeah, not not yeah. until not until. Well, recently. I think also you know like people who are born after the Second World War, mm -hmm. they see Judaism as being the Holocaust and very right. little else. And and I I cop to that myself. Yeah, well, you we know, did. It's, I, it's a, it's, I had we no do. idea when I was growing up that there were Jews who came from Morocco. Yeah, of course. It's it, the, the Jewish Iran. European narrative has become so dominant. But yeah. what's interesting, like I'll yeah. give you an example. Um, in Israel, that's not the case. In Israel, 60% yeah. of the of the Jewish population in Israel comes originally either from North Africa or from Central Asia, mm -hmm. um, uh, or from the Sephardic world, like places like Turkey or, mm -hmm. or the Sephardic areas of Greece. So the, the, it actually, demographically, it's the Jewish majority. Um, and the most prominent henna-using group in Israel are Moroccans. There, there are, mm -hmm. I think, even, even today, somewhere close to like 20% of Israel is of Moroccan, of, of the Jewish population is of Moroccan origin. So, um, so, like in North America, if I walk around with henna on, the the most common thing that people are going to say to me are uh, is, uh, oh, did you just come from an Indian yeah. wedding, or did you come yeah, from yeah. India? In in Israel, people will say, oh, did you just come from Morocco? Did you just come? Did you just go to a Moroccan wedding mm -hmm. or, or Yemenite? Oh, right, right. Moroccan yeah. or Yemenite? Like that's okay. the first instinct. That's interesting. And, and even in Israel, I have to remind people that henna is also done in India. No, no, um, no, no, no. That's impossible. I think it's almost. It doesn't even make any sense. But really, yeah. the only. I mean. In the older generation, the yeah. younger generation today, uh, they all go to India. A yeah. lot of oh, the, right. uh, because a lot of the, it's very popular in Israel to take a year off after your uh, mandatory army service and then go to travel in India. Nice. So a lot of like 20 somethings go to India for six months and then come back. So they're very familiar. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, some of them are more, I mean, people, I mean, you live in India for six months and you really absorb quite, quite a bit. I mean, yeah. there are, 
um, when I was living in Jerusalem, there was an Indian restaurant on my street mm-hmm. that just opened by a, by a young fellow, a young Israeli fellow who had just come back from, he spent like two years in India and, and really mastered South Indian cooking to, to a really oh, very wow. high degree. Wow. Um, and he opened a, a lovely sort of South Indian style uh, restaurant in Jerusalem oh. and it was very popular. I, nice. I believe it's still there. Um, but in the older generation, people who came to Israel, uh, you know, in the 50s, yeah. Their association with henna is either Morocco or Yemen yeah. because those yeah, are the most, that's the most prominent use of it. So it's all about cultural context. It's all about what do you see around you. And that answers what I was saying about how Indians, when I'm at weddings and they hear that I first saw henna in Morocco mm-hmm. and they're skeptical, exactly. it actually makes sense in in if you think about how huge India is and how culturally yeah. diverse India is. I mean, here, you know white people in America right. tend to think of India as a, this a block, one sort thing, of a conglomerate. and yeah. Indians are all the same, and the, you know, there's just, I don't even know it's how like many Europe. languages like they in, have India there. is comparable both in geography and more, cultural diversity to Europe. more so. It's more I mean, languages are there in Europe? Like, well, I think there are like 2,000 languages in India or right. something. I don't know. Maybe, you know, there's uh, there's a, a yeah, but you're right. huge I, I number. Think, it's huge. And there's a lot of, gen- of different cultures. And it's also, you know, a huge landmass. Right. And so... Like, it's know, enough to know if you're if you're Hindu and living in... You're a Hindu living in, in, in I don't know, Kolkata. It's enough for you to know that there are Muslims yeah, in Mumbai exactly. who also do henna. Like, yeah. that enough yeah, is like, oh, wow, you're already, already moving out, yeah, of your, exactly. out of your cultural sphere. Yeah. Right. And it's like, you know, for somebody living in the States to know... You know the culture you know the culture of you know california maybe but right. you don't necessarily know the culture of mexico no. or you know as well as you know your own culture when you right. have a culture that's so huge and all-encompassing right. in your life like and this happens i mean this happened this probably has happened look outward at all no it's probably happened to you when you're traveling right yeah. you say you're from you're from the united states oh do you know so it's <laughs> like do you are you, <laughs> do you really, joking yeah. are you really joking um Happens to me all the time. Oh, you're from yeah. Canada. Oh, you're from Canada. Yeah. I have a friend who lives in Vancouver. That's, that's a six-hour flight. Yes, that's great. From from Toronto. Like, I'll uh, tell me their name. Yeah, tell me their name. I'll, <laughs> next time I'm in Vancouver, I will. I'll just yell it out. Yeah, right. I hope you survived that and are hungry for more. I know I definitely am. I, as soon as I finish editing this podcast and putting it out there for you guys to listen to, I'm going to work on part two get that out there as soon as possible. I'm sure you're all just itching to find out how it all ends. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe to this podcast via iTunes. That way you will always get an update whenever there is a new podcast episode and also feel free to review and leave feedback for the podcast. That would be very helpful for me to know what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. Also, you can reach out with any suggestions. Um, things that you would like to know about various artists who are coming up as guests or if you have any suggestions for people you'd like to have me interview. You can reach me at webmaster at kenzie.com. The podcast is blogging at caughtredhandedpodcast.com and we're also on Facebook so please follow us or like us there. Noam, thank you so much for coming to my house. It was really good to see you and I just really really loved interviewing you and talking with you it's always a blast and always enlightening i would also like to thank shlomi cohen for the music in this podcast if you like this music you can find out more about his upcoming album at shlomicohen.com he also has a kickstarter campaign going on to help him release his upcoming album thanks to nash koram 
who did the gorgeous photo that's on the blog and on the Facebook page and also on iTunes. That's it for me, Lisa Butterworth, with the Caught Red-Handed Podcast, Episode 2. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.